0: davis has been the ceo of global witness since 2020 having previously served as the director of campaigns planning and evaluation for three years during this time mike has overseen the development of a new global witness strategy with a strong emphasis on abuses of power driving climate crisis mike first joined global witness in 2003 holding numerous roles including exposing corruption in the myanmar jade business and writing two groundbreaking exposés on corruption in Cambodia, both of which were banned by the Cambodian government.
1: Mike Davis, welcome to the One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be here.
1: And so one of the most important skills you can have is an understanding of the planet and today everyone needs to be part of the environmental solution and that's something that Global Witness has been part of for almost 30 years. Uh, Just tell us something about the mission and history of Global Witness and your path to becoming a human rights and environmental activist.
2: Yes, Global Witness was established around 27 years ago now with the explicit purpose of being the organization which would address this sometimes neglected relationship between environmental abuses and human rights abuses and the initial focus of the organization was to apply that to a situation of extreme human rights abuses in Cambodia to try to make the connection between the timber trade that was demolishing the country's rich tropical forests and also a conflict which over the course of, of, of decades had, had killed around 2 million people all in. And the purpose of this was to try to, to break that connection, to stop the timber trade financing the insurgent group, the Khmer Rouge. And that campaign was successful. And it then inspired the organization to take on a range of comparable challenges, looking at this relationship between abuse, abusive exploitation of natural resources on the one hand, and grave human rights abuses on the other. And that took us into the realm of... Blood Diamonds, we were the first organization to expose that phenomenon, uh, which at the time, this is going back uh, nearly 20 years, was financing uh, a series of extremely violent wars in different parts of sub Saharan Africa, but driven by the global demand for diamonds. And then beyond that, into an area of campaigning which we still have a major focus on now and inspires much of our climate work, which is to do with the highly abusive, predatory and corrupt behaviour of the oil and gas industry. And for many years we concentrated on exposing this phenomenon through our in-depth investigations into corruption cases which were harming people, particularly people of colour in the global south, and the way in which this was enriching oil companies and, and those that backed them. And this focus on corruption led to some groundbreaking initiatives to bring greater transparency to the relationship between oil and gas companies on the one hand and governments on the other and, and this ultimately took the form of binding laws in the US and also the EU and that's informed that experience working on oil and gas scrutinising the oil and gas business and also the vital importance to people and planet of tropical forests has inspired the work which we do around climate now. So on the fossil fuel side Our mission now, if you like, is not just to stop fossil fuel industries from being corrupt, but fundamentally to stop them being, because the planet cannot afford a continuation of this phenomenon where, by one estimate, 71% of of all global emissions since the late 80s have been been perpetrated by just 100 fossil fuel companies. This has to stop, and our particular focus now is on the role of the oil industry in trying to get us all hooked on uh, fossil gas, or what they call natural gas. And with respect to climate-critical tropical forests, our mission at this stage is to take the money out of the businesses which are causing the most destruction in critical forested areas in the Amazon, in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly the Congo Basin and parts of Asia Pacific. And what we have found is that Contrary to what one might hope in an era of climate crisis, you've actually got quite phenomenal amounts of private investment going into the industries which are causing the most damage. Our research found that, in fact, $44 billion had been committed to six of the companies which had caused the most destruction of these tropical forests, coming from around 300 investors, including a string of well-known high street banks and and well-known investment houses. And we're also, through all this, continuing to put the focus not just on the environmental dimension of this, but people as well. So a third uh, major program in our climate mission now, alongside that focus on oil and gas and forests, is the people who, who defend our planet, what we call land and environmental defenders. And we've been documenting the way in which activists and just ordinary folk on the front lines around the world in the face facing off against predatory resource grabs are being threatened or even killed as a result of their work we were inspired to do this initially when around nine years ago one of our former colleagues somebody I worked with in fact in Cambodia was murdered while undertaking an investigation into legal logging operations and we quickly became aware that this was a global phenomenon in fact last year 212 land and environmental defenders were murdered, of whom 40% or thereabouts were from uh, Indigenous communities.
1: And you have worked around, I don't know if you've encountered, how do you say, threats to your your own, being when you've been working in international projects. I'm so sorry to hear about uh, all your colleagues. And how do you give them support and protect them?
2: Yes, as an organisation, Global Witness has to take security risks extremely seriously. Uh, We encounter quite a range of threats to our work, and some of those take the form of cyber attacks, and we are regularly threatened with lawsuits by powerful companies and individuals who who don't like the scrutiny that we place them under. But far and away, the most serious category of threats is to those we work with in fragile and sometimes dangerous parts of the world. There are occasions where our own staff find themselves at direct physical risk, if you like, and we uh, devote a lot of attention to ensuring that we can keep them safe as possible. But the reality is, in most cases, it's our partners, it's individuals who might be assisting us with investigations who face the highest risks because they, frankly, don't have the privileges that most of we do. They don't. Uh, most of us do. They don't have foreign passports and the potential backing of powerful governments to get them out of trouble. And that's something we have to take very seriously indeed. And so quite a lot of our work in countries where defenders, activists, our partners might be exposed to these kind of risks is taking place is based around ensuring that we can protect them to the maximum extent possible and that we have ways of of assisting them if they, they do get exposed to danger.
1: And you do such uh, wonderful, co- courageous work. And I think that just holding people, our, our corporations accountable, holding power accountable, it, it's interesting because it is uh, making its influence now on what BlackRock has done. I don't know if you feel that's like lip service or if it's going to go away, but what are your the successes that you feel that people are responding and through the information that you're sharing and how you're inspiring them to take action?
2: Yes, thank you. We we would like to think that our work, alongside that of many others, uh, many other groups working on climate change, and of course many um, thousands, millions, even of individual citizens and activists, is starting to make a difference. We have a long way to go, but we do think a particular contribution that Global Witness has made has been to draw attention to. the the way in which, if you like, the money and taxpayers' money and private investment has been going into harmful activities and how that needs to change, Uh, and also the corrupt and predatory character of some of the main industry interests which are standing between um, the rest of us and a safe and prosperous future within planetary boundaries. So to give you a couple of examples, you know, we have done work to expose the way in which taxpayers' money in Europe is being used quite wrongly to extend the life of the big oil industry as it seeks to reposition itself as the uh, purveyors of of fossil gas. Um, They've done a tremendously effective job, the oil and gas industry that is, persuading policymakers that they're offering this um, essential climate-friendly bridging fuel called gas, which is a complete myth because actually it's driving us closer to our planetary limits. And in actual fact, if you uh, look at the IPCC analysis, if you want to stay within the, the realms of a maximum 1.5 degree temperature rise, uh, we actually need to reduce production and consumption of gas by 40% over the next decade. So we would like to think we're doing an effective job at at, at challenging this myth that that gas is the answer. And we've been calling out the EU in particular, on the wasteful and rather suspect way in which it's been allocating taxpayers money to investment in more gas infrastructure, which would cement our addiction to gas for decades to come. And we actually published a report last year which showed that of the 4 billion euros which has gone to gas infrastructure subsidies, almost 90% of that went to gas companies from one industry association, which actually has a formal seat at the table in deciding on how the subsidies are allocated. And this corporate capture is something which we really need to challenge. Another example of us holding uh, big oil and gas to account is the work which we've been doing investigating a horrendous corruption scandal affecting Nigeria, in which two of the biggest oil and gas companies around, Shell, and also the Italian state-owned oil company, Eni, actually handed over $1.1 billion in what was essentially a bribe to a former oil minister who was also a convicted money launderer in order to gain control of one of Nigeria's most lucrative offshore oil blocks. And because of the work of us and our partners in Nigeria uh, and also Italy as well, we have succeeded in instigating a criminal investigation into this case, which is currently running through a trial in Milan right now, which we think may produce verdicts on former Shell executives and some serving any executives by the end of this month. we think this is really important because this shows the true character of the fossil fuel industry interests that we're facing up against. This is not a group of of companies and interests that can be trusted, shouldn't be allowed anywhere near the decision-making process around our energy choices, our efforts to counter climate change. And yet we see time and again that the fossil fuels industry continues to have to have its tentacles wrapped around decision-making in the US, where of course they have lots of politicians in their pockets through a form of legalized corruption uh, and through corporate capture in the EU and elsewhere. And this desperately needs to be challenged. This is the main threat at this stage we are facing. Individual choices, individual consumption is very important. Developing the right technology very important, although arguably already done. The main barrier is really political. It's the misuse of power by those interests which don't want to see change and would rather continue to profit at the expense of the rest of us and our planet.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I do believe it's political, but I always, I love to hear um, hopeful and optimistic that you that you feel the other solutions are all there. I don't know en- enough about it. I've heard about that more locally sourced energy, more greener technologies. And I've heard about us taking part in creating our own energy and it's not being in the handful mm-hmm. of companies, but I, I don't know enough about what that looks like on the ground. And I feel like sometimes you can get um, more people involved when they have a when they don't feel it's implausible or impossible to imagine so how do you maybe coordinate with other partner partners that empower people to speak up against the corruption when they feel that they have alternatives that are accessible to them
2: yeah it's a really good question I think the first thing to say is that we are optimists We, we would not be in this if we weren't very hopeful and we believe that there are the signs there that we could, as often talk of a tipping point in climate debates, of a rather doom-laden and a negative nature, but we could actually be quite close to a tipping point where there is enough concerted global action, powered by the hope and the desire of ordinary citizens, to cut through these malign political and corporate forces and get us on a pathway where, yes, some damage has been done, is being done, and it's very serious because it affects people in all sorts of vulnerable parts of the world. But where we could, we could yet contain this and, and manage it. And I think in a sense, the global response to the, the horrors of the COVID pandemic, you know, grim experience, so that is, it, it, it is in some ways a hopeful illustration of what can be done when there's concerted demand from citizens um, that governments have to respond to for immediate action rather than foot dragging. And we also believe that that there are many stories of hope in the work that we do to try to uh, project and amplify the the voices and experiences of those on the front lines. Those I referred to earlier as land and environmental defenders, who are the ones who, in many cases, are defending vital biospheres for the rest of us uh, and our planet in the face of a very high risk. So I, I think you're right. It's very important to draw attention to the grounds for optimism and to that end we're very encouraged by what we see as an increasingly competitive position of renewable energies where they can and are proving that they can outperform fossil fuels. We think that's why it's the role of some groups, not least ourselves, to to cut through the political and corporate capture related barriers that the fossil fuels industry is putting up but that is real grounds for hope and we also draw attention to this abuse as we do because we actually think it's really important in order to, to have people in a state where they feel optimistic and empowered to, to get away from this idea which fossil fuel interests like to put about, that insofar as there is a climate breakdown, it's all our fault as individuals and it's all about our choices as individuals and as consumers. And of course, to some extent it is, but the data suggests that actually... Far and away, the the biggest source of emissions is a very small number of fossil fuel companies which don't want change and will use any means, any sort of misinformation in order to distract us from that and in some cases make us feel guilty and depressed instead of feeling, feeling both hopeful on the one hand and ready and empowered to challenge them on the other and that's what we want to contribute to.
1: And speaking of, excuse me, because I'm just looking behind you uh, and speaking about being hopeful and empowered. I'm looking at a a drawing of a a bird behind you. And I think, excuse me, to ask about your family, I I think it's maybe your daughter. Is it true?
2: Yes, my my daughter did that drawing last Friday. This bird, which she's depicted, came into our garden and started feeding at one of our bird feeders and none of us was quick enough to get a really good picture of it with a camera so she drew it instead it is in fact a a parakeet which until you know a couple of decades ago was quite an unusual sighting in in this part of the world But, but there are many of them resident in parks around where I live and yeah I'm very happy to see that for lots of reasons my both my children especially my daughter are fascinated with nature and the natural world and it's funny in a way that she should pick up uh, is something to focus on because one of the reasons I got into environmental activism and, and in a related way human rights activism is because there is something of a family tradition. My, my grandfather was an ornithologist and wrote a book about birds, and my great-grandfather also, and this is what first got me interested in nature. My, my grandfather would take me on bird-watching trips in his boat, looking at seabirds around the coast of the Island Man where he lived. I later got interested in bugs, particularly insects, moths and butterflies. An experience when uh, I was 12 of, of, of being able to go and spend some time in a tropical forest in Malaysia in the house of a lepidopterist, an expert on moths, it helped me make the connection between the, the sort of individual creatures that I was fascinated by and and the wider environment which they and we need to survive.
1: Oh, that's a beautiful! I love how that's transmitted to generations that care, and the I just I think that's lovely. that you've already obviously imparted many things to your daughter, and how do you help? I don't want to say prepare her, but how do, it's very important how we educate the next generation about the environment and get them climate literate, and just how what are some of the how do you educate her? How do you bring that her, into that?
2: Probably the most difficult question I think you're going to ask me because I'm not sure that I'm any sort of expert on on parenting, but we, my wife and I, yes, we try to give our children opportunities to, to interact with nature as best we can, although we live in a big city, and also in a way which hopefully inspires rather than alarms them, Give them a chance to understand some aspects of the, the forces out there that, that shape our world. Yeah, my, my daughter is nine. She's already far more politically active than I was when I was her age, and uh, it's only a few months since she got bored of me being on Zoom calls and, and stayed away. Before that, she would regularly come and interrupt calls with this one and announce that she was going to use her Thai boxing skills to punch Donald Trump because of what he was doing to our planet. Yeah, I, I, I never had that, that energy and focus when I was that age.
0: Thank you. And I think going off of that, I was just curious in general about how you educate individuals and ease them into these ideas, because I know for some... It can be, people can be hesitant to accept the reality that is coming just to protect their own optimism and to protect their own family safety, their own mental health even. So how do you empower individuals to recognize the reality that's coming and to actively have a role in stopping it?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one we think about quite a lot as a campaigning organization, which specializes First and foremost, I would say less in mass mobilisation and awareness raising and more in uh, very deep dive investigations into the sort of issues which I described earlier, and also advocacy which tends to be quite targeted on policy makers and decision makers and companies and intergovernmental bodies, but we, we obviously think hard about the question you raised, how do we get the message through more broadly? And we do that through a variety of means. Uh, some, if you like, a little bit more on the traditional side. We, we often work with um, mainstream media to try to get our investigative findings, our recommendations, our, our messages out there because they can help us to, to broadcast those in a way which we can't. But we also work increasingly through online means, more active use of of social media. We have a fantastic communications team. We have an absolutely brilliant data investigations team, which forms a natural complement to that. We often work with partners, too. To give you an example, we have a, a very talented group of campaigners working out of Brussels who are trying to persuade policymakers in the European Commission That they should introduce a law this year, at least get the debate going this year, uh, a law which would hold companies accountable for the whole range of harms which they sometimes inflict both on the environment and on on human beings. So it would, coming back to the start of our discussion, it would cover both the the aspects to do with the environment and people as well. And this is a very difficult debate to explain and get people animated about, precisely because the European Commission and the way in which the EU makes its laws is incredibly arcane and hard to follow. However, through very creative work by my colleagues, uh, including our communications team, we actually managed to set up a kind of online tool, which made it much, much easier than it would otherwise have been for um, anybody to make a submission. To the European Union on this topic. We worked with a partner organisation, well, three in fact, but one of them was Avaz, who of course have a huge amount of expertise in, in, in reaching mass audiences. And ultimately we got in around about 450,000 submissions. And we wouldn't have been able to do that on our own, but but where we can combine with others to bring to the depth of analysis uh, and investigative findings that we have with with the capacity to to, to reach thousands and hundreds of thousands that, that others can bring, it can be very effective. So we increasingly do use techniques like that. But we also recognize that the message we put out there, while it quite often because of the, the strength and sometimes the shocking nature of our investigative findings, it can get people's attention in a way by by surprising them. Shocking them, we also do need to combine that with a positive message that there is a pathway through this. We need to cut through the the naysaying, the negativity, and and a suggestion which does, as I said earlier, come back often from propaganda from fossil fuel lobbies that there's nothing to be done. We the individuals are all at fault, and moreover, the situation is hopeless. It's not. We still have a pathway out of this, but it is about empowering people and it's about facing down the forces that are that are trying to stop people rising up and demanding the climate revolution, which they deserve.
1: And since Brexit, and you have great organizational capacity what kind of adaptations you might have had to make to, or has it just um, gone on seamlessly since Brexit with Global Witness?
2: Another excellent question. I, I think Brexit has, in a way, the reality of it has, has crept up on us. It's like many of us have been living with this nightmare since the since vote in 2016. And, and, and at the time, uh, I was actually living far away from this, I was living in Cambodia watching From the other side of the world, as as my country made this sort of tragically self-defeating decision to seemingly downscale its uh, its worldview and its influence, and now, of course, we're actually there, we're actually out of the European Union, we're still trying to figure out what that means. We want to work very hard as an organisation which, yes, has most of its staff in the UK, but also has colleagues based in in the US, uh, in Brussels and other parts of the world to work harder to be a truly global organisation. And of course, part of that is making sure that we continue to maintain strong friendships and alliances with with partners and groups and relationships with decision makers, too, in in the European Union is now being put to the test. But we do think there are some things that we can use to, at least in the short term, mitigate that, that significant set of disadvantages and coming back to the issue of global climate action, of course, this year, coincidentally, we have the UK hosting G7 summit and much more importantly, the, the COP26 summit at the end of this year. And that is an opportunity to, to try to persuade a not very environmentally enlightened government that it needs to take a lead. Um, it needs to show some leadership on the global stage where it's going to look Truly ridiculous. And that is an opportunity which we're doing our best to take. For example, through work which we're doing at the moment to persuade lawmakers in the UK that the post Brexit law, which they need to create governing issues to do with the environment, needs to include really strong provisions to do with the UK's international imprint on tropical forests, It's, its deforestation footprint, if you like. We're working really hard on that. We did a brilliant investigation, my colleagues did at the back end of last year on the exposure of the UK and other international banks in deforestation in Brazil, in the Brazilian Amazon to do with, with the meat trade and the big three cattle ranching companies there. And and we're using that to try to stir lawmakers here and saying, hey, we actually have a role here. We have an opportunity to show what we can do. And we need to do that quickly in time for COP so that there is something to be shown. And then we, of course, would like to use that as a precedent and invite other other countries, other jurisdictions like the EU and the US in particular to do the same thing. So there are some opportunities amidst the post-Brexit gloom.
0: I'm Pearson Brown, a student at American University. I'm majoring in an interdisciplinary degree, which combines communications, legal institutions, economics, and government. In addition, I am minoring in art history and pursuing an advanced leadership studies certificate. With the creative process, I am an associate podcast producer focusing on curation, museum education, and sustainability. As I spoke with Mike Davis about his investigative research experience, the goals of Global Witness, and his own views on the climate crisis, I found myself continuously inspired. Even as he discusses the difficult realities of habitat destruction, corruption in governments, and political indifference, there's always a feeling of hope. As he noted many times as we spoke, he does call himself an optimist. Even just speaking with him for an hour, I knew this to be true. Where I found myself agreeing with him most was when he mentioned that it's not too late to change our current path. At times, it can be difficult to see a way forward, and it seems that soon our Earth will be changed beyond repair. However, it is organizations like Global Witness and their partners that are pushing for change, and it's leading to great progress. Without exposing the realities of billion-dollar industries and how they take advantage of both people and the planet, there would not be enough pressure on governments like the EU and the U.S. to make changes. While I agree that the bulk of the blame lies on the shoulders of corporations, which is where Global Witness puts most of their focus, it is organizations like this that instill a personal responsibility in me. Advocacy work gains power through community building and holding those with the most power accountable for their actions. With Mike Davis as the leader of Global Witness, I'm confident that this organization has the drive and means to make the changes that will protect our Earth for generations to come.
1: And so that's, in terms of what realistically you feel can be accomplished in COP26, if you could only have one thing that was accomplished, that what would, you, I know this is an impossible Questions, but... Well, I might
2: tickly offer. a... Uh three things. One is uh, a phase out of all fossil fuel subsidies. Absolutely crucial, because although the fossil fuel industry likes to align itself with, uh, if you like, quite conservative free market politicians, they receive an immense amount of taxpayers' money in subsidies every year. The IMF, not a particularly radical organisation, has previously calculated that around $5 globally. There needs to be a phase out, a just one, because there are certain types of subsidies, which people in in, in less prosperous parts depend on, if you like, at the consumption side. But but the, the early wins would be to do with removing subsidies from the production of fossil fuels, extraction of fossil fuels, and that includes all the tax breaks and sweeteners that they get from governments. Uh, A second area which relates to fossil fuels would be in some form or other to draw a line on the influence of the fossil fuel lobby at the decision-making table. One of the things which always strikes me as remarkable is that in this time where we all recognise the threat of uh, climate change, we recognise the role of uh, fossil fuel emissions and a small number of companies in that, you still see these CEOs of the biggest, most polluting uh, companies fated as, as as the people who are going to provide us with the answers and obsequiously invited onto the podiums that sort of major gatherings to do with climate change, which, which is totally absurd. And it's a bit like asking big tobacco to lead the charge in helping us find better treatments for lung cancer. So we need to put an end to that. And the third area, which I just mentioned, would be a, a global commitment to by all countries to pass binding legislation regarding their international imprint on forests through supply chains and also chains of investment. the Financial flows from big banks are absolutely crucial parts of this.
0: Going off of that, I'm curious about what your lobbying process looks like. I know at least from the American perspective, often all that politicians would like to focus on is that this will create job loss and they use that as a political tool to convince the public that this is not a viable option to reduce Fossil fuel dependency. So I was wondering how you mitigate that.
2: Yeah, that that is a, a a question which often comes up, and we would tend to draw attention to the the way in which the economy, you know, in the United States and and in most parts of the world is is shifting of its own accord. It's somewhat held back by the immense amount of subsidies which fossil fuel industries still get from governments, often disguised. But despite that, renewable energy is increasingly competing with, in many cases outcompeting old tech, polluting fossil fuel energy production. And renewable energy industries also create great jobs, often a lot of jobs. Now, that's not to take away from the care which needs to be given to transition. Know, from one type of industry activity and job creation to another but this is doable and and this is what happens over time as uh, one source of industry is succeeded by another there are transitions and they need a great deal of consideration from the perspective of the well-being of of, of those involved but 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 this is what occurs and do we still have people who are bemoaning the fact that the oil and gas industry put whaling out of business. I don't mean to trivialise this, but over the course of history, these transitions occur. They need to be managed very well, but they can be managed. And in this case, we're looking at one which is being propelled along both by environmental planetary necessity, but also increasing the, the forces of the global economy are pushing this. People don't want to be invested in fossil fuels anymore, not only because they worry about the climate, but In some cases, it's just hard-headed calculations. Why would you want to be exposed to a risk of investing your money in what are often known as uh, stranded assets? So essentially where you you put a lot of money into an oil and gas extraction project, for instance, which is going to play out over decades. But the risk is that if Paris climate commitments are met, it won't actually be possible, it won't be permissible to extract those resources and you you lose your cash. So there's actually all sorts of things which are, propelling this transition. And when I talk about our part of this in terms of confronting the abuses of power driving climate crisis, one of the critical outstanding pieces is exposing, calling out, challenging the role of uh, the fossil fuels lobby in particular, which is trying to hold us back.
1: Yes, I think that it, there's so many reasons to be positive. And I was speaking uh, the other day with uh, Kathleen Rogers, the president of Earth Day, and she, they have that climate literacy initiative. And I, I don't know how it plays out in different countries I and mean, in terms of how we're all being educated for the future at a, from a young age. But I think that definitely needs to be a part of it. That people are. It's about jobs for the future. As you say, it's a it's another it's a green revolution. And how do we prepare people? It's not just environmental scientists or anything like that it's like blue-collar jobs for the future. What are some programs you're seeing, or pr- maybe even pushing for within the UK, or that you've seen in other parts of the world, because to prepare ourselves?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and I should sort of begin by saying that we we aren't specialists in, if you like the if you like the economic modeling or or the technology to do with that transition. So. We talked earlier about the partnerships that we have with others. And this is an area where we tend to work quite closely with partners, which which have a much greater depth of expertise in this area than we do. So we we recognize that we we need to take account of it in our advocacy. But to come back to the point I was making in my previous uh, answer, we we spend a lot of time doing what we think is 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 a necessary role of leveling the playing field where you have a situation where perhaps it's difficult for new technology of renewable energies to compete as effectively or as fully as they otherwise could, because there's a, the deck is stacked against them because of the political power of fossil fuels lobbying and the way in which they award themselves tax breaks and subsidies, then we would take that on. And that's something which we've done, for instance, even here in the UK, to do with semi-hidden government, UK government sweeteners and tax breaks and incentives to to try to perpetuate the the extraction of oil and gas in the North Sea, which without those is almost certainly not competitive, quite apart from the fact that it's harmful to the planet. So we see our role in, in, in this is taking on that dimension. I mean, this is a massive challenge confronting climate change. We are very proud of our track record in, in making change uh, on the back of our investigations, but we, we have to have an element of humility as well, recognise that we can't do it all ourselves. We, we need to work with partners who are much better situated to, to lead on other aspects of the debate. And I think this one that you've just picked out is, is one of those.
1: And in terms of the history of Global Witness and looking back and the achievements, and, and you, I don't know how many years you've been at Global Witness, but you've seen a certain progression of awareness. So just looking back, what, what are those things that you're proud to have achieved or at least move the, the conversation along closer to uh, your goal?
2: Yes, yeah, thank you. It's a very dangerous question to ask, because I, I might give uh, uh, an even longer answer than the other ones I've already given, because there's quite a lot to talk about. I, I did join Globulence a long time ago. It's been most of my career. I joined 18 years ago as at the bottom of the rung and as an assistant campaigner. And I was recruited to work in an office that we had at the time in Cambodia, where we had a, a campaign to counter the illegal logging and destruction of Cambodia's tropical forest. And that was driven by highly corrupted, very powerful mafia type group of people. They were relatives of the Prime Minister, Hun Sen, who is still in charge of the country, a uh, very predatory and dangerous group. And I was in this slightly, in a way, absurd situation of quite quickly having to be in charge of a team of, of very seasoned and very daring. Cambodian investigators there were four of them who were using a, a range of undercover techniques and ingenious cover stories to get out in the most remote and dangerous parts of the country to get very detailed information on what was going on in terms of illegal logging and bring it back and, and we used that as a basis for a campaign which was quite successful. There's quite a lot in the news at the moment about U.S. sanctions and a certain Israeli mining tycoon who has been the focus of our investigations. But we we succeeded in persuading the um, U.S. government to push for for targeted sanctions on corrupt politicians who who we had named in our reports. That's just a part of my history. In terms of the organization's achievements, I would think of the work that we did to instigate international action in terms of a global... uh, trading scheme on rough diamonds to counter the blood diamond trade the work i mentioned earlier around transparency anti-corruption measures to do with the oil and gas industry and having to disclose its payments to host governments and since then we've done work this one i was involved in to do with setting standards for responsible management of mineral supply chains to make sure that mining particularly in conflict-affected parts of the world like democratic republic of congo is not driving human rights abuses and there are many others, but one I should draw attention to because it's uh, a recent big win based on a decade's worth of campaigning is to address the role of corporate secrecy and the creation of shell companies, anonymous companies, this is companies set up with hidden ownership, address the role that they play, they've been used to play in corruption around the world uh, and driving money laundering, and particularly the theft of money from already poor countries. There's a rather sort of traditional and not very uh, sophisticated view of corruption as being about that being something which just happens in parts of the world where, you know, there's weaker democracy and, and less, less robust standards of public integrity for politicians. But what, what our work has exposed over many years is that it, it really does take two to tango. There's no point in stealing lots of money unless you can put it somewhere. And much of this siphoning off of the money laundering of it has been done by a very well-paid and seemingly respectable pinstripe army of uh, lawyers, company service providers, estate agents in places like London and the US and various other very rich parts of the world. And what we've managed to do is, with a number of partner organisations, it's important to stress, is start to put in place the basis for a global standard, which means that um, anonymous companies can't be created and used anymore. And at the end of last year, Uh, We got a a big breakthrough in the United States where, despite the efforts of Donald Trump to veto a piece of uh, legislation in question, provision was included in a law which means that anonymous companies can't be created in that way in the US anymore. So that's just a few examples. There are lots more, but I'll spare you those.
1: There are huge, yeah, huge advances, and I want to just make sure that people who visit your site can, if they want to support any of these, if you need uh, signatures, just let us to know a little of some ways that people can get involved in Global Witness or, or having their voice heard.
2: Yeah, thank you for asking that. We are Always looking uh, to encourage more support. We would invite people, if they can spare the time, to uh, consider signing up for our regular mail outs by email. We want to inform as many people as possible. We want to to share with them information which we hope that they will share with their friends and derive inspiring outrage but also hope from and a sense of a desire to act and, and similarly on in terms of our social media channels we are very active uh, on twitter increasingly instagram as well we've always welcome people picking up our messages and amplifying them and also in situations where people feel they can we we're always very appreciative of funding contributions as well we are entirely dependent on, on external sources of funding. That largely comes from the foundations and individual philanthropists, and we are eternally grateful to them, but we are increasingly trying to encourage more members of the public to to support our work in whatever capacity they feel they can, and there, there are ways of getting involved in, in that respect too, again, via our website. I
0: did have one point that I was just curious about. I. Mentioned before, the last study that you put out overexposed, and I was just wondering what mm. your research process looks like as part of your organization and how that bolsters the other work that you do.
2: Yes, yeah, our work is all founded on our own investigative research, and it takes quite a few different forms. So. It includes some of the things which I mentioned. I was talking about a moment ago about the undercover investigation done by uh, the team I first worked with and learned from in Cambodia when I first started with Global Witness. And we still use undercover techniques to get information, which often includes use of uh, hidden camera filming, for instance. And we also use a range of what you might call classic field research or journalistic techniques where our staff, get to remote, hard to access places to witness uh, and document um, what is going on firsthand. We also build partnerships with organizations in the countries where we're doing that sort of work. We're very reliant on our partners and very proud to work with them. For instance, the investigation I mentioned a bit earlier to do with cattle ranching in Brazil and the role of international banks. That was done in uh, partnership with an outstanding Brazilian organization, Amazon. And in some cases, we're working with people who aren't part of organizations. They are citizens who perhaps share our agenda to expose and confront abuses of power to do with uh, natural resource extraction and the climate. And we form relationships with them, which will sometimes go on for years. Forgive me for the sort of indulging in a bit of personal reflection for a second, but I did work in uh, Myanmar for several years. I wasn't based there. I was based in Cambodia nearby. And that was an example of how we do this sort of thing. We built up a network of partners and sources, which was absolutely essential to being able to expose the multi-billion dollar jade business and who was controlling it, essentially some of the same sorts of people who have just instigated it. And so I've been calling and messaging some of my friends from that work some years ago now, but they are my friends. I'm still in touch with them. So those personal relationships are in some cases very important. Increasingly, we use data investigation techniques. And I referred to this earlier. We use this actually now in almost all our investigations. But again, to sort of pick out the one I mentioned that we launched at the end of last year to do with the role of banks in driving deforestation in Brazil, we had this partnership with Amazon in Brazil, which was vital. But we also had our data investigations team, which we recently expanded, and they are extremely talented sleuths of their own, of a different type. And, and what they did, which was remarkable, I didn't know one could do this, was they managed to identify, extract and analyse three million cattle transport permits, obviously using an automated um, piece of software that they built themselves. And having distilled the findings from that, they then overlaid that with um satellite imagery analysis, and then we combine that with the, with the in-country investigations done by our partner to produce a multifaceted and, and very strong set of findings, which are then the basis for another element of our work, which is standard across all our investigations, which is actually correspondence with the people we're writing about. So in the case of that, and Brazil investigation... That was very detailed correspondence with the three big meat trading companies in Brazil, JBS, Marfrig, and Minerva, but also the banks who were bankrolling them, providing them with services, the likes of Santander, BNP Parra, HSBC, BlackRock, who you mentioned earlier. And this is another source of information for us, as well as a way of ensuring the integrity of our investigative research and protecting ourselves from legal challenge as well. And there are cases also where, and you mentioned the overexposed report, where We're doing it a different way. We have, we're blessed with some very talented colleagues who are excellent researchers of that kind of quite sort of technical data. And in that case, they were making heavy use of a global database of information about oil and gas production, forthcoming production as well. It's, it's, it's essentially a tool for the industry and using that. So we use a very wide array of techniques. Another one is is use of analysis of, of, of corporate data sets. We increasingly attract and look at leaks and, and, and information which people provide us confidentially. So there's that side to it too, sifting through company records, sometimes company correspondence, and in many of our investigations, we're using several of these types of techniques at the same time.
1: It's the, the breadth of your research and the breadth of your uh, projects is it's like almost overwhelming to, to take it all in and it's your commitment to them. And I'd like to, as you say, you're Uh, an optimist. And I think that because you're surrounded by people who have this same commitment too. So I do like to leave on thinking about looking back over the places you've been based, whether there's the reforestation projects or your early involvement in birding and just thinking about their natural habitats and just thinking about the beauty and wonder of the natural world and the thing that things that you've witnessed that maybe not might not be around for future generations if we don't protect it just tell us some of those memories. Because
2: I'm an optimist I tend not to dwell on the idea that they might not be around for future generations but yeah I've been very fortunate through my work to visit and work in and try to play a role in saving the ecosystems in some very beautiful parts of the world and um, there aren't anywhere. I can look back and say my contribution was especially pivotal, but I've I've had some level of involvement in wider efforts. And I, I think of years I spent where I was able to regularly do investigative forays into remote forested areas in Cambodia, staggeringly beautiful Tropical forest and, and and quite awe-inspiring as well, because when you're actually in, inside a forest, you realize that it's not necessarily what you'd expect. The the sheer all-encompassing feel of it, you're in a it's a sort of separate microclimate. You literally step out of it back onto a road and, and, it, and it feels different, it feels hotter. And a lot of that actually was also time spent. We used to do this about once a month. We would rent a small plane. Uh, a Cessna and fly it for several hours at a time over, over the forest trying to look for signs of illegal logging and which you could often pick up not just by gaps in the canopy but also smoke from um, fires um, set by the loggers and that was an amazing privilege too I saw these stunningly beautiful landscapes from a particular vantage point I usually had the seat at the back of the plane we would take the side off the plane it would just be me and my seatbelt holding me in and looking out over these amazing vistas and because I have very pale skin I would end end the day one of, after one of these overflights with one side of my face the right hand side very red and sunburnt, and the other as pale as it was when I set out which yeah was a rather sort of peculiar look and, and also work which I've done in, in in, in places that are you know, currently, sadly, very troubled, but, but stunningly beautiful. And thinking of parts of Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, absolutely extraordinary landscape. You know, this is the area, not far from where you have these precious habitats for mountain gorillas, for example, and many others as well. But yeah, I am an optimist. I I, I don't think it's too late. It, it fills me with outrage when I see these places being despoiled and and destroyed and particularly when it's done on the basis of such fundamental injustices which we have to address as part of our response to climate change. But yeah, I I believe in those places and I believe in our our planet and its future and I believe in, in, in our collective power as citizens to Um, be optimistic but also be empowered and and, and confront those interests which are are stopping us getting the action that we need from our governments. It's a big challenge but I believe that we can do it and I feel very inspired and lucky to work for an organisation which plays a part in doing that and when I think about my daughter and my son and what awaits them Yeah, I I don't dwell on the negative. I I think that they will have much of the same natural riches to to look forward to enjoying um, and benefiting from. I also hope that they will grow up in a political landscape globally where we have confronted the climate challenge and along the way change people's thinking about how our, our economy has to work, how our political systems work, a situation where there is more of a sense of global cohesion and collaboration between different countries. And justice as well, uh, accountability for those who stand in the way, a greater sense of fairness. I, I, I think we can get there. It's a big job. I'm delighted to be able to play a small part in it every day.
1: Well, thank you, Mike Davis. It's, yes, it is a big job, but you've shown us through your life and your commitment, it's a great example how each of us can get involved and I want to thank you for all you and Global Witness does to protect the environment, shine a light on corruption and the abuses of power driving the climate crisis so that we can change the system and build a better future for us all. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you Leah, and thank you Pearson for your excellent insightful questions yeah which yeah inspired a lot of reflection and probably too much talking for me but thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Pearson Brown. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the Climate Change Solution, just drop us a line at team at org. Thank you for listening.